The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. So in our home, when it comes to um, cleaning dishes and what the right tools for cleaning dishes, we find ourselves uh, going back and forth between the, the kitchen scrub brush and um, the kitchen sponge. So what'll happen is, um, we'll use the scrub brush for a while, like for a couple months, and then um, we'll, we'll be like, ah, no, maybe the kitchen sponge. So then we'll transition to the kitchen sponge. We'll use that for a while, then we go back to the brush. And the question that we keep going back and forth between is not which is more effective. Because they're both effective, okay? They get the lasagna off the plate. Like, they can both accomplish that task. That is not the question. The question is, which is the most disgusting? Because, like, the bristles, like, on one hand, like, I like the bristles, but there it's impossible to thoroughly get the food out from in between the bristles, okay? You know what I'm talking about with the bristles? Some of you have rejected the brush for that reason. And, and with that, the sponge, like, you don't have food particles on the sponge. You can get the food particles off the sponge. So you think. I recently read a study, and I wish I hadn't. What it says about the kitchen sponge is that it can have, within a square centimeter, up to 45 million bacteria. Now, I don't know what that means. Like, I know they're really small. Like, for all I know, I could have that much bacteria, like, on my forehead. Like, I don't know. Like, is that a bad thing? You know? Like, I hope I don't. But, like, is that a bad thing? So, to give it context, they say that there may be parts of your kitchen sponge that have more bacteria on it than the inside of your toilet bowl. Now, you wish you hadn't heard that, don't you? Okay, and so the good news is, first of all, the good news is um, this is a brand new sponge. So if you shake my hand later, <laughs> don't worry. Okay, that's one piece of good news. The other piece of good news is that they, you can clean your, your sponge, and they give you a couple ways to clean your sponge. You can put it actually in the dishwasher, depending on the type of sponge it is. You can put it in the microwave, and they recommend please minimally clean your sponge, your kitchen sponge, every two weeks, if not every week. Now, some of you hear this and like, when I go home, the first thing I'm going to do is throw away my kitchen sponge immediately. Others of you are going to say, I'm going to go home today and I'm going to burn the kitchen down. Like that's the only logical thing to do. I'm just going to burn it all down, okay? So that's what some of you are going to do. But I bring this up because the reason that the kitchen sponge is, is, collects so much bacteria is obviously it absorbs, okay? When, whatever you put it in, that is what it's taking in. And so what goes in is what comes out. Obviously, that's how a sponge works. And I, I bring this whole illustration up because I've heard it said before that children, when they're little, they're like sponges. Whatever they're around, I mean, they're, they're, they're very porous, so to speak. I mean, whatever they're around, like they're just like absorbing it all in. And so whatever they're around, as they get older, that's what's inside of them. And it's not just the, the context of you know, that they're inside of them. I have to disinfect my hand now as best I can, even with this. I wish I could just burn my hand, but I can't do that because that would hurt. Um, but there, there's a, it's a context, not just of the different environments they're in, but we know that they're absorbing something 
of they're absorbing something more. We know every time their little eyes look up at us. They're absorbing who we are. And whether that's our, our children or grandchildren or just kids in our lives, we know that they are absorbing in who we are. Now, that is a awesome and terrifying responsibility. But there's good news. First of all, um, none of us are perfect. There is no perfect parents. None of us are perfect. And despite the fact that we are imperfect, God still thought it was a good idea to put children in our lives. And uh, ultimately, he's their heavenly father. So that's also good news. We'll talk more about that. But that still doesn't mean that we just say, ah, all right, so good, I got those things, I'm gonna you know, just do my thing. No, no, there's still a call and an urgency in our lives to be very conscious and aware of what are our children who God has placed in our lives. What are they absorbing? And I wanna take you to a passage that will show us specifically how can we be more intentional with what our children are absorbing growing up in our homes, growing up around us. So I want you to open up to a passage that talks directly about this. Uh, open up to Colossians chapter three, verse 21. And we're gonna really zero in on this one main verse, Colossians three, verse 21. And then we're going to, to uh, work backwards a little bit, but I wanna just jump in with this um, one main verse. Here's what it says. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Simple phrase. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now let's just break this verse down a little bit at a time. First of all, he references fathers. Now, in the Greek, the word fathers, the, the masculine parent in the plural, that word fathers can reference and can mean in certain contexts fathers and mothers. It can mean parents. And I think that in, there is a sense in which this passage does apply to both fathers and mothers, to parents uh, together. So um, both fathers and mothers lean in on what this text is saying. At the same time, there is a Greek word that is more neutral and just means parents. That word does exist, and he could have chosen, the author of this is Paul, could have chosen that word in this context. In fact, he uses that word the verse before, that neutral general word for parents that's not specifying fathers or mothers. He uses that in the preceding verse when he says, children, obey your parents. So he's pivoting from a word he just used to a word addressing fathers. So here's what I think then we do is we're reading the text very sensitively. We're like, why did he switch words? I think here's what we do. Fathers and mothers both lean in on what this verse is saying. At the same time, fathers, there's a way in which this applies to you especially. Now let me just also give another disclaimer here before we go into this. We also have to understand Paul's concept of fatherhood, the author Paul. We have to understand his concept of fatherhood because Paul saw himself as a father. 
He saw himself with sons. One of his sons, he referred to him all the time as his son, was a young pastor named Timothy. But what you need to know about Paul is he was not married, and he had no biological children of his own. And so there's something in the concept of fatherhood, and I think if we think through our own life experiences, we know this to be true. We have biological fathers, but we also have other people who parent us. We have spiritual mothers or spiritual fathers. We have people who coach us, people who impact us, people who mentor us. So who should be, when when he starts with fathers, who should be leaning in? Well, it should be mothers and fathers, and in a way, especially fathers, but it should be fathers of all types. It should be biological fathers, adoptive fathers, foster fathers, and it should be spiritual, spiritual mentor, mentor fathers. It should be uh, biological mothers. It should be adoptive mothers, foster mothers, spiritual mothers, people, uh, women that are mentoring and coaching other ladies in a way that is a, almost a mothering role. So just all of that should lean in because there's something very basic about parenthood that he's saying. Okay, you follow me so far? Fathers. He says, do not provoke your children. Now, we know that parents, we do things and it makes our children mad. That is pretty much unavoidable. We, we do that. If some of you are like, wait, what? Like, I don't know where you're living, but um, you may be just comatose every time you go home. But we do things and we make our children mad. And there is a style of parenting, a theory of parenting that is basically built on keeping your children from getting mad at you. That's a thing. It's so desiring that affection from the child, so desiring to keep that relationship intact, that almost that relationship is not even a parent-child relationship, it can be more of a friendship relationship. How do I operate in a way where I'm gonna push the line right up until they get angry and then I'm gonna back off? And that can start all the way at being like with your children as toddlers, all the way up to, to being a teenager. And we know that while it's not hard to slip into that, there's something fundamental that we know that that is not what God designed for us as parents. In fact, that uh, is not biblical. Like this is what the Bible says about that. Let me just jump over real quick to Proverbs 19:18. Here's what it says: Discipline your son, for there is hope. And then look at this. This is so odd. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Some of you are like, I know the pain. I could kill that kid. You know, it's like, you know, you know the word there. Okay, but this is what he's talking about. He's talking about, listen, if you avoid disciplining your child, they're going to destroy their lives. Like discipline is loving them and ensuring that they're, they have life in all different kinds of ways. I mean, literally, for starters, it's why you discipline a child not to touch a hot stove. It's why you discipline a child to not run into the street without looking both ways. I mean, it's literally, discipline is a life or death issue, but it's also a life or death issue on some of the other things, on how they they treat their, their family, how they treat relationships, how they take responsibility. You know that it's disciplining our children is a life or death issue. We do, we discipline because we love our children. So we know that we're supposed to discipline our children, but that still doesn't settle that issue of provoking our children because there's this tension. On one hand, we wanna be consistent parents with follow-through. 
We don't always want to be threatening things that we never follow through with. If we do that, that's, there's no discipline. It's just empty threats, and our children learn that really, really quickly, right? They can yell and scream and get mad, but they're not going to do anything. We want to be consistent parents with follow-through. At the other hand, we don't want our, our presence in their life to be summed up as corrective, where every conversation is a redirection. And so we know that there's space where we pick our battles, right? And so somewhere in there is this tension of picking my battles and also knowing that, look, I want to be a consistent parent. And somewhere in there is that tension of saying, how do I know when I provoke my, parent, my, my children? Because there's a moment where I'm like, oh boy, I know as a parent I got to speak up. And, and this is true, like the toddler, the child, the teenager, the young adult, I know I should speak up, but I'm going to be starting a fight. So how do I know, do I provoke my child or not provoke my child? Or, or how about, I mean, that's even true of the people that you're spiritually fathering or mentoring. I know what they probably need to hear and they are not gonna like it. So how do I know when to provoke my children? Well, here's the rest of it. It says, fathers of all kinds, do not provoke your children. And then it says, lest they become discouraged. Now this word discouraged, you know, we all have a concept of discouraged, but the original Greek word that it's being translated directly into discouraged is interesting because it starts with the word for passion. And then it basically talks about dispassionate. Do not provoke them to lose all of their passion. Do not provoke them to where their, their spirit is broken. Do not provoke them to the point where they become dispirited, would be the idea. Now, what is that talking about? That talks, that's talking about where a child is walking out saying, I can't do it. I don't think I'll ever do it. I remember when I was in college, our college had a, a tradition, and it was a, a relay race between the, the freshmen, the sophomores, juniors, and seniors. And this happened every year, but it was a particular type of relay race, a lot of like class pride for your, your uh, whatever your, your class was competing, and you'd pick, uh, there was a, a men's race, a ladies race, you'd pick four ladies, four men, and uh, it was a relay race, but it was a specific type of relay race. It was not running on foot, it was not swimming, it was via bicycle. But here was the trick. It was not four bicycles, one for each member of the team. It was one bicycle that had to be handed off. And so um, here's what would happen. The first person would start at the starting block and they would furiously pedal. They would go all the way around this long loop. And then as they came up back to the finish line, there was another person and they would start running and you'd be riding the bicycle. You jump off with the bicycle moving, running like this. They run alongside it, grab it. And while it's moving, they jump on the bicycle and keep going. Now, they, that might sound to you like a silly relay, but this particular relay had been going on at uh, the college that Rebecca and I went to for over 70 years. So they had black and white pictures of people our grandparents' age doing this particular relay. So as silly as it sounds, people were deadly serious about this. And almost always someone went to the hospital. <laughs> so when I was a freshman, 
I learned about this relay and someone said, hey, you know, a group of us freshmen are gonna go try it. You know, we've never done that. I mean, when have you ever like tried to get on a moving bicycle, okay? And I'll, or get off a of moving, keep it moving and pass along. Like, I was like, it sounds conceptually that it's not hard. And they're like, can you ride a bicycle well? And I'm like, what kind of question is that? Can I ride, a, can, does anyone not ride a bicycle well? Like that's kind of a dumb question. Of course I can ride a bicycle well, okay? So I went out the first morning, we get up early and we practice it. And there's all these sophomores, juniors and seniors who've been doing this for years. They're pros, like look how easy it is. And so I, I went out, a couple of my buddies and by the end, I was so bloody that I realized I can't ride a bicycle well, okay? Like that, that was me. And I said to myself, I cannot do this. And furthermore, I realized I will never, never be able to do this, okay? Like my, any passion or, or any, any delusions of grandeur at this were gone, this is not for me. There are things that happen in life that bring us to that realization, I am not good at this, and I will never be good at this. And there are things in life that can bring us to that realization. And parents can do that too. Parents can bring a sense into a child's life that breaks something in them. Where they say, I, I can't do this. I can't do your expectation. I can't do your religion, your faith. I can never live up. I'll never make you happy. And there's a, a brokenness that can happen where suddenly that child, or over time maybe, their spirit is broken. And, and children, man, they, they uh, absorb, you know, so much, right? I mean, it's whatever they're, they're in, like they're just... You know, they're just taking that in. And then that's being squeezed out. Like that, they're, they're like sponges. And so what do we do? Like, how do we guide them? Well, here's the problem. The world has only one or two answers. There's one of two answers. How do you not break a child? One of two answers. The first one is probably the more popular one. And it's license. We'll call it license. Here's what the world's answer is. Look. Don't, and the fear is, I don't want to shove religion on my child. I don't want to shove my expectations on my child. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to let my child be them, and I'm just going to promote them being them. And so it's like, I'm going to, I love you. This is how it goes. I love you, so go find yourself. I love you, so go find your own truth. I love you, so... Go, go find your own way to live. And however you do that, because I love you, I'm going to let you live and do your thing. It's license. I'm going to give you the license to live however you want. And so that's one world. I don't want to break this child, so I'm going to do that. On the other hand, there's the, the other side and is so afraid. This side's afraid of, of just forcing expectations and religion on a child. This side is so afraid of the child wrecking their own life or the world wrecking their life. And so one side is license, the other side is legalism. And that parent says, I love you so long as you follow my truth. This one says, I, I love you 
so find your own truth. This one says, I love you if you follow my truth. And, and this is where you find, you find uh, the world basically boils down to these. It's just license or it's legalism. And, and the problem is neither one works well. I heard someone say parenting is like holding a bar of soap. Man, you, you hold it too loose, it falls out. You hold it too tight, it squirts out. But what if there's another answer altogether? The scripture gives a completely, it's not, and it, hear me, it's not a balance in between. It's not, well, we'll have a little license and a little, we'll have some rules and some liberty. We'll have some license and some legalism. It's not in the middle. It's a third option altogether. And I want you to see how Paul, the author here, has set up. This is the word of God. This is how this passage is set up. I want you to roll back a few verses. I want you to pick it up in, in verse 15. Look what he says. Before he addresses parents, this is what he says. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be, what's the word there? Thankful, hold on to that. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here's what he says, look, in everything you do, right before he goes into this whole section about, about to parents, he says, look, in everything that you do, you're dwelling in Christ. Do it in the name of Jesus because you're dwelling richly in him. Think about him and teach about him. Encourage each other in him. Sing songs about Jesus. Sing hymns to each other in Jesus. Encourage each other in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Like you're absorbing in Jesus. And this word thankfulness is repeated three different times. Now here's what's interesting about this particular Greek word for thankfulness. It comes from the foundation word for grace. And that's the opening words of this entire book in Colossians. Paul says, grace to you in Christ Jesus. There's a third option. It's not license. It's not legalism. It's a third option called grace. It's something completely different. What is grace? I just read this definition out of a, a Greek dictionary just this week. And uh, this is what the Greek word in essence means. Listen to this. A winning quality or attractiveness that invites a favorable reaction, graciousness, attractiveness, charm, winsomeness. What a beautiful description. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, it's not only the foundation word. Grace is not only the foundation word for thankfulness, but it's also for joy. What is Grace. It starts with that there's been grace given to you through Jesus Christ. What is grace? It's that when God looks at you, you can't wipe the smile off of his face. There's a winsomeness when he thinks about you. There's a love when he thinks about you. There's a delight when he thinks about you. There's this, it's that type of reaction to you that brings, that would bring delight if other people saw it. 
You ever just watch two other people laughing with such delight that you can't help but start to laugh? That's how he's describing how he feels about you. He can't help but love you. Nothing's gonna happen to his love for you. Why? Because of the work that Jesus Christ did to formally wash away all your sin, past, present, and future, by paying the penalty for you on the cross, declaring you not just cleansed, but declaring you righteous, giving you his righteousness. And God says, formally, officially, you are righteous like Christ. I will treat you as that. And since Jesus rose again from the dead, you know you'll spend eternity in heaven. And he says, so I'm adopting you in as my children, and I will have this ongoing, unstoppable love that you cannot possibly imagine the height and breadth and length and depth of, and that is my constant, unchanging posture towards you. You, you and I live, if you have accepted the free gift of salvation that's offered you because he first loved you, he accepts you first, he offers it to you while you're still a sinner. It's grace is not something you could earn. It's not something you could get. It's something that he's offering you and you accept in Jesus Christ. That grace is over our lives and we walk in this perpetual graciousness from God and nothing can possibly change that. And so here's where he starts. He, here's what he says in these verses before that. He starts in, in Colossians. Hey, grace to you. And then before he goes into this passage about parents and husbands and wives and workplace relationships, before he goes into these one another relationships, he says, so here's how you should act towards each other. Be overflowing with that grace for one another. You've had that grace given to you. Overflow with that to one another. Have this constant love, this constant, this constant thankfulness for one another, this constant joy, this winsomeness over one another. Over your spouse, over your children. Have that grace flowing out. It's flowing out in, in songs that you're singing because of Jesus. That Jesus is that, that what you're absorbing in your home and it's causing grace for one another. So what is, what is grace? Grace is not license, it's not legalism. It's not I love you, so find your own truth. It's not I love you if you follow my truth. Grace is a third option altogether different. It's I love you, period. Now here is God's truth. I love you. Period. Nothing's going to change that. That's constant. That's steady. That doesn't go up and down. I love you. Period. Now, here's what God's truth says. It's not my truth. It's God's truth. If there's one key principle we could walk out of this text, it's um, a definition of what does he mean by fathers. He's kind of giving a fatherhood definition here, and it's this. If you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down so you can refer back to it. Fatherhood is a gracious presence in another's life. Fatherhood is a gracious presence in another's life. It's uh, for starters, um, again, fatherhood. 
When he talks to fathers, he's talking, I think, the inference is for all parents. Mothers, you can live this out. And actually, some of you mothers, you find yourself being both the mothering and fathering presence in your children's life. And so this applies to you too. Fathers, you should especially lean in. There's something in particular he's saying to fathers. Uh, there's a common phrase in our world and in our generation where when someone is, um, has a really broken relationship with their father, um, they may say, or it may be said about them, they have daddy issues. What's interesting is it's much less common for someone to say they have mommy issues. There's, and I'm not saying there's not issues with mothers, but there's something about unique that mothers imprint on their children and there's something unique that fathers imprint on their children. Fathers, lean in. Stepfathers, lean in. Uh, adoptive fathers, foster fathers, lean in on this. Spiritual fathers and mentors, lean in on this. Fathering, fatherhood, is a gracious presence in another's life. It, it's a gracious presence in that it loves unconditionally, but at the same time holds to God's truth uncompromisingly. Those are not at odds. The world tries to make those at odds. They're not. We do both in Christ. Fathering, there's something that we're passing on into our, our children's lives that we've got to take advantage of. And so we're, we're, he's calling fathers. And what's interesting is that fathers, it's interesting that God chose this way to describe himself in that when Jesus, when they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray, there's so many different names for God that you could come up with to, to pray. He's revealed himself in so many very clear ways. And so Jesus could have started the Lord's Prayer with um, Jehovah Sabaoth. That's a name he, he revealed himself as. That's the Lord of the armies of heaven. It could have, Jesus could have began the Lord's Prayer with Jehovah Rapha, that's the Lord is my healer. Jehovah Nisi, that's the Lord is my banner. El Roy, you're the one who sees. How about Yahweh, the great I am? On and on, there's all these names that God revealed about himself, but when they asked Jesus to pray, if he could pick one, here's the name he picked. Abba, our Father. Why? Because he's a presence, a constant presence who never leaves us or forsakes us. And he has a gracious presence in our life. He says, I love you. I accept you. While we're still sinners, I accept you. But he's not going to compromise on his truth out of his love for us. But he always shows his love for us. So what does this mean? How do we have a, how do we have a gracious presence in others' life? Um, let's start with this. We have to have a presence in each other's life. You have to have a presence. You have to be there. Uh, men, some of you say, look, that's, that's hard for me. You don't understand. I, I'm divorced. I only get my, my children part of the time. And so it's hard. And, and for some of you men, you may have said, look, I, it's hard. I've kind of given up that I'm going to have that fathering presence in their life. Men, don't give up. Find a way. 
Find a way. Be creative. Men, you, you have, you've used that same creativity at work. Use that same creativity to solve problems in your career. First and foremost, find a way to be that presence in their lives. Some of you men are like, look, my kids are grown now. Find a way. Be present in their lives. Some of you men say, look, my, my problem is not that I only get my kids part of the time. My problem is that I'm very, very busy. Men, find a way. Don't miss out on the most important thing in your life. After your relationship with the Lord, after your marriage, it's your kids. That's the most important ministry you have. Find a way. I had a really interesting conversation with my kids over the summer. They are just starting to put together that I'm a pastor, that that's what I, I do for a living. And they're starting to kind of put that together. And um, some of you know my story. I grew up in a, a pastor's home. So I'm a pastor's kid. I'm also a pastor's grandkid and great-grandkid and great-great-grandkid. Okay, so I'm messed up, okay? You can just pray for me, okay? And through one of those lines, that, that's, that's the way it goes. And so I've thought about this. Rebecca and I have talked and thought about it. Like, how do we want our, 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 our family to thrive and our kids to thrive um, being a ministry home? And some of you know, like I hear from some of you, and I, I love this, you say, hey, pastor, we're, we're praying for you. You know, we, we pray for you, and I, I love that. And some of you know that, man, pray just as much for pastors and ministry households. Pray for the spouses and the kids because um, there, there's sometimes the, that's where the attack is. And so you, I love that you all are praying church for, for the staff team and their families. Well, I had this interesting conversation with my kids where um, oh, I think it was my son and my daughter, my older daughter was there and the, the three of us were talking and he said, Dad, is it more important that you preach or that you play with us. And I said, just as a reflex, and I said, oh, it's playing with you. And he said, what? But dad, and, and he says, you know, but that's how people hear about God. Like, how are they gonna hear about Jesus if you don't preach? And I said, buddy, I love that you know what preaching is. And I love that you have a value for preaching. And you're right, I mean, even the Bible says you know, how are they gonna hear unless people take them the good news? That's sharing our faith, that's preaching sermons, it's it's one-on-one -on -one conversations. I love that you know what preaching is, and that's that is what I do when I preach. But I said, buddy, but there's other people at the church that can preach. I'm the only one who's your dad. I wanted it to be one hundred percent clear for him where my priorities are. Men. When you come home, oh yeah, but what if someone needs to get a hold of me? I mean, if something blows up at work, we're not that important. Well, you don't realize, oh, I gotta applaud, thank you. One guy's like, well, I am not that important. Okay, I got it, all right, all right, I know. All right, all right. Took me a second, but okay, okay, I'm in, all right. We're not that important. We come in, we have, we're glued to our phones, like it's the bat phone. You're not Batman. You're not Batman, it's not that important. You say, oh, you don't understand, I'm in a really busy season. Okay, maybe you don't understand or have forgotten you only have your children in your home for a really short time. Turn off your phone, be present. Don't be physically present and emotionally absent. Be present. Put the phone away, put the computer away. Be there, 
be at ballet recitals, be, be at the spelling bee competition, be at soccer games, be there. Be there for the things they're interested in. Be there. Be present. Why? Because you know what it's like to have a heavenly father who's always there. Who's always there when you call. Be present. Second thing, be graciously present. May your presence be gracious. I want to give you four things under this. Briefly, we're going to move through this quickly, but four things. Please write these down so you can think about them and diagnose yourself with them. Here's the first one. Do they have my acceptance? Let's go back to that question. Would they say the fundamental, the fundamental thing in their life, when they, your presence in their life, what are they absorbing? Is the fundamental thing they're absorbing? And again, this is fathers, this is mothers, this is biological fathers, adoptive fathers, uh, foster fathers, this is um, stepfathers, this is spiritual fathers, is the fundamental descriptor of your presence in their life. Is it corrective? Is it constantly redirecting, correct? Don't do that. Don't say this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Is, does that need to happen? Of course. But is my fundamental thing that they walk away as they have my acceptance because that's what you have from God. First and foremost, he loves you. And then out of that love for him, we want to obey him. Do they have my acceptance? Or do they think that they have my love and acceptance based on their behavior? That's religion. That's not the gospel. Do they have my acceptance and that's not going anywhere? You're my son, you're my daughter, I love you and nothing will ever change that. Do they have my acceptance? Here's the second one. Do they have my, aff my um, affirmation? Do they have verbally, am I speaking over their life? Do they actually have my words speaking into them? Am I actually saying, well, I'm not a very verbal type of person, but am I saying, no, no, I will figure out a way. I will learn how to verbally pour encouragement over their life, speak over their life. There's something powerful about how parents all the way through history are the ones that give their children names. They give their children names. There's something they're speaking over them. The, the words that a child, that a parent speaks over a child, there are few things they absorb more than the words that a parent speaks over their children. Do they have my affirmation? Here's the third thing. Do they have my affection? Do I scoop them up into my arms? Do I wrestle with them? Do I tickle them? Do I kiss them? Do I hug them? Do they have my physical affection? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm not a very affectionate person. You know, I don't do that kind of thing. Man, figure that out. Men, if you have sons or daughters, but especially if you have daughters, figure out how to give them physical affection lest they go find someone who will. Do they have my affection? And lastly, do they have my attention? Do they see my eye contact? Do I, am I always lecturing or am I sometimes listening? Am I often listening? Am I drawing out who are they? What is going on in their mind? What are they interested in? 
my joy am I, they have my attention when I'm home. They know that like when I'm there, when I'm present, they have my full attention. Well, I listen to their entire very long story about something I'm not really interested in. And there's a whole lot of detail in there. But do they have, do I hit the whole story? Am I listening to it? Why? Because it's important to them. Your heavenly father listens to you, you know, drag on and on and on and on too, you know. Do they have my attention? Do they have my acceptance? Do they have my affirmation? Do they have my affection? Do I have my attention? Parents, and especially fathers, can we have a presence into our children's lives? Can we have a gracious presence in their lives? And in so doing that, the overall message that they're absorbing is not, you can't do it. You'll never be able to do it but it's the same message you get from your heavenly father. I love you, I'm for you, I'm with you, and we'll walk through this together, and please, I'm, I'm showing you what God's truth is. But nothing changes that I'm, that I'm for you and I love you. May we have a gracious presence in our children's lives, in our spiritual children's lives. It's hard to talk about this subject without addressing the fact that for some of us, we're still putting the pieces together that we did not have that. And many would say, look, I'm trying, I'm trying the best I can, but I, I, did, I had no example of this. Like I, this was not what I had in my life. And every family has its it's brokenness. That's 100% of families because we're all human. And God entrusts imperfect people, entrusts children to imperfect people. But here's what the good news is. You have a heavenly father in your life that is the real model. He's the model. Every person has a biological mother and a biological father. And that's a significant person. But there's one that actually knit you together. That actually thought you up. That's known your every thought. That's walked with you every moment. That knows you better than you know yourself. And says, you can't really believe or know how much I love you. That's what your heavenly father says. And so for some, your greatest challenge is believing who your heavenly father is and how he feels about you. And so for some of you, the best thing you could do today is return into the strong arms of your heavenly father. He's offering, he wants to, he's, some of you say, look, I've never had that with God. I've always viewed God much like maybe you viewed your father or your mother just kind of waiting disapprovingly for you to get your life together. That's not who he is. He's told you who he is. He loves you. There's nothing could possibly change my love for you. And I'm with you. And so I want to invite some of you to be adopted by your heavenly father today. He went at great lengths, great cost. Jesus Christ died on a cross, faced death and sin. That was the cost. 
but he rose again. The payment's done. He's adopting you as a father. He wants to be with you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to speak all the wonderful things about who he's made you to be. Run into the arms of your heavenly father today. I want to lead us in a time of prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Some of you are here and you say, look, I, I know Jesus, but I'm, if I'm honest, I, um, I've never had a real robust view of God as my father. I just want to ask him for that today. Others of you, maybe you're here and you're like, look, I have grew up religious. I've never really gotten into it. That was my parents' religion, but I'm now realizing there's something more. It's you and your heavenly father. It's your creator. It's not a list of oppressive rules he's putting on you. It's a love he's expressing to you. And we live under his leadership because of that incredible love. And so for some of you, it's to put your faith in Jesus because you realize that he is your father, your heavenly father. And so I just want to lead us in prayer. Um, if that's you, and let me, if you're saying, look, I, I'm a Christian, but I want to receive the fatherhood of God in my life and experience that more, let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, I pray for all of those who are right now saying that they want to experience you as their father. Holy Spirit, do a special work in their heart from this moment forward. Redefine how they operate with you. Help them know you as a father. Others of you want to receive Jesus as your savior. And if that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. Make this your silent prayer to God. Just silently in your seat, you say this to God. Say, God, I want to receive you as my father. And I put my faith in Jesus. Jesus saved me so that I can receive you as a father. I follow you because I'm believing in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you put your faith in Jesus for the first time, what I want to ask you to do is get this Get Connected card before you leave, fill out this information, and then um, check off the box that says that you put your faith in Jesus for the first time. If you're watching online, go to cityrev.org faith. Let us know. We're going to send you a Bible so you can learn about the love of your Father. If you fill this card out, we'll follow up with you, get a Bible to you. We'll even talk, even talk to you today if you want to take this to the guest services station. We'd love to celebrate that with you. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.